Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for Advent this year, uh, we have been reading together about the coming of Jesus from Luke's gospel, um, but we haven't been reading from the parts that we most often think of this time of year. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we read Jesus' teaching about his second coming, and then last week, we started reading about John uh, out there in the wilderness on the banks of the Jordan River getting people ready for Jesus to come onto the scene. And so this morning, uh, we're going to drop back in with John. I'm going to read from Luke 3 for us, verses 10 through 20. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would uh, use this word, this word that Luke records for us, that that. John, the baptizer, spoke for us that you have given to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would use this word to show us more clearly the grace of Christ, and that we would have an apprehension, a new apprehension, or maybe a renewed apprehension of what we just heard in that Old Testament lesson, that you rejoice over us with singing, that you can turn our shame into praise. Father, show us the grace of Jesus, we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I thought about Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol as I was uh, mulling over John's back and forth with the crowds uh, that we just read together. You probably know how that Dickens story goes. If you don't, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you. Um, but it dropped about 180 years ago, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling the ending. You probably could have read it by now if you wanted to. Anyhow, at the climax of that story, the future comes to old Ebenezer Scrooge. His life up until that point has been all turned in on himself. He's pursued his own interests. He's pursued his own well-being to the exclusion and to the hurt of others. And what he gets to see in that vision of the future is precisely what a life that is bent in on itself looks like in the end and what it has cost everyone around him. 
And you know, uh, when I was a little kid, in particular, as I would watch the, all the movie adaptations or cartoon adaptations of A Christmas Carol, I used to think that the thing that really scared him, the thing that really got him was that he saw his name on that gravestone and he realized he was going to die. But of course, you know, Scrooge knew he was going to die. He's no dummy. I've realized as I've gotten older that the thing that really scared him was the thought that maybe he had run out of time to make good on the change that had taken place in his life. I mean, that's what he says. I am not the man that I was. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. What Scrooge wants is time. Time to do something different in the world. And of course the beauty of this story is that we get to see it. We get to see it. Scrooge was better than his word, the narrator says. He did it all and infinitely more. And I think that is a great window into the question that the people asked John at the beginning of this passage that we just read together. They ask him, what shall we do? <laughs> Why are they asking John what to do? Well, it's because John has just shown them a vision of the future. We talked about it last week. Even now, John says, even now, in this moment, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's told them that somebody is coming, a king is coming, and he is establishing his kingdom. And when he comes, he will come with both healing and purifying judgment. And now he's really, really close. The lumberjack is aiming up his first swing at the root of that tree, and so there is an urgency to their question. They want to be ready. They want to be ready. Like Scrooge, they don't want to run out of time. They know something big is happening, something that they know deep in their bones that they needed, something that spoke to their deepest expectations and hopes and longings. And they knew, because John had told them, that when it happened, everything was going to have to change. Everything would have to change. As, as John put it, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So that's why they ask him, what do we do? They want to know what they should do in flesh and in blood to be ready for the advent of this king who is coming with both healing and judgment. It is an incredibly relevant question. And it's a wise one too. Not just for those people out there in the wilderness, but for you and for me too, as we wait for this same king to come again. What is the look of a life that is ready? What should we do? Well, before we get to John's answer, I think it would be good for us to think a little bit about who John was. We didn't get to do that last week very much. Uh, and I think that if we do this, it'll shed important light on his answer to the crowds. I mean, it'll make it pop a little bit more. I mean, who is this guy standing, you know, on the cusp of the advent, getting people ready for Jesus. And I think the simplest way to say it is that John's whole life was a life of dissent. John's whole life was a life of protest. Where he lives, where he does his work, what he says, what he actually does, what John looks like, even what John eats. All of these things conspire together to scream that John stands opposed, 
opposed. (laughs) He is opposed to the status quo, graceless, closed world that had been carved up and run down and controlled by the powers of his day. He's opposed to all of it. We talked about those guys last week, those seven powerful men that Luke listed at the beginning of this chapter. John is not compliant. He is not compliant to their control. He is not complicit in their system. He is a living, walking descent. And it is definitely going to get him killed, church. But for now, the people are drawn to him with this irresistible attraction. The gospel writer Mark tells us that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem went out to see him. It wasn't just the really like religious, churchy, fervent people. It was everybody who went out to see him. Everyone. But in order to see him, they have to walk away. They have to walk away. They have to walk away from their towns. They have to walk away from the Roman seat of power and that guy who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. They have to walk away from the temple. They have to walk away from the priests. They have to walk away from their homes. John makes them walk 20 miles out into the wilderness and that is the point. That's the point. Everything has to change. You have got to make a clean break, John is saying. He's making them actually physically embody repentance before they ever hear him say a word. Because that's the meaning of repentance at its heart. Turning away and walking away from something and walking towards something new. And church, I just want to say that following Jesus, for us, you know, following him in wisdom, following him in humility, it should make us think about clean breaks all of the time. You know, what what is the soon coming king telling me that I need to walk away from? Right? What is this thing that I'm caught up in, this stuff that's, that's hurting me, this stuff that's hurting the people around me? What do I need to turn away from and walk away and leave behind before he comes with healing and with judgment? And if people like us, you know, if we can't come up with a list of pretty solid things almost every day of our lives, then we're just kidding ourselves. We're like sleepwalkers. And John is a reminder that part of the life of faith, it's making clean breaks through the practice of repentance. And you know, there was perhaps no more clear sign of John's protest, no more clear sign of his descent from the system than what he did to people when they got out there. He washed them. a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why do I say that this is dissent and protest? Well, here's why, and it's something that's easy to forget, but we shouldn't forget it. I mean, if God's people wanted to experience the forgiveness of sin in John's day, there was already a perfectly good place set up where they could do that. (laughs) There were guides that would lead them, properly sanctioned guides that would lead them through the process, right? That's what the temple was for. That's what the priests were for. John's dad was a priest. He knew the system. But John was calling them away from that to something new. His descent is a big fat pointer to the promise that something greater than the temple is just around 
the corner. So that's John, you know, and you might think that when they ask him, what are we supposed to do, John, that he said, he might say, you know, be like me, you know, join the wilderness protest, drop out of the system, hang out with me by the river and pray. And you know, I don't doubt some of them wanted to do that. And I don't doubt for a minute that some of them did, but that is not what he told them to do. Like I said last week, the thing that mattered most for John was not ultimately some dramatic moment out in the wilderness. That was important and that was a good start. But what mattered most for him was the long, long game of faith under the gracious and peaceable rule of the Advent King. So instead of telling the crowds to throw away their stuff and join the cloister and start wearing camel coats and eating locusts, this is what he says. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. (laughs) Go right back home. (laughs) Go right back home, John says. And care for the poor. And care for people who are in need. Give generously from what you have been given to the good of others. That's what people who are ready do. And if you think that the God of healing is coming, this is John's message in the wilderness. If you think that the God of healing is coming, if you really believe that he is coming, then you will extend in the most red-blooded way that you possibly could, in the most concrete way imaginable, you will extend the healing generosity and the grace of that God into the world. If you think that the God of healing is coming and you want to be like him and you want to be ready for him, then you will extend his grace and goodness into the world. You will work towards what you hope for. And church, long live the revolution. Long live the revolution. Walk right back through the wilderness to your homes and your families and your friends and your jobs and advance the gracious and peaceable kingdom of God with your hands and feet and voices and time and bank accounts and blood and sweat and tears. You are not the woman you were. You are not the man you were. Live into who you are now, who you have been made by Jesus. This is as uncomplicated and as immediate and as urgent for me and you as it was for the people who heard John say it the first time. Leander Keck uh, taught at the Yale Divinity School um, for many years. He wrote that we often think of repentance as something that sinners go to on their way to salvation. But repentance is turning one's whole life toward the will and way of God. And so repentance is not the preliminary step to something else. It is the name of the game. (laughs) I love that. Repentance is the name of the game. (laughs) To have faith in Jesus is to live a life of repentance. And church, honestly, I think that the sooner that people like us um, believe that, And by believe that, I mean actually practice a life of open-handed repentance. The sooner we do that, 
the sooner we will be of some good use to the people around us. And the sooner we will be of some good use to this broken world for its life. Because it's exhausting and it's time consuming to act like we have it together. It turns us into fakers really fast. It makes us do all kinds of dumb stuff to compensate and manage and hide. But you know who doesn't expect you to look like that? You know who doesn't want you to live like that? Jesus doesn't. His invitation is like John's out there in the wilderness. It is to a life of repentance. It is to a constant turning back to the one who has an endless store of grace. Both grace to forgive us and grace to change us. And that's the truth. It's absolutely true. The grace of Jesus sets us free to live lives of repentance. It sets us free to have our faith work itself out in the world in love. And you know who else came to John? (laughs) The tax collectors and the soldiers came to John. And if that doesn't tell you how compelling and magnetic his movement was, then nothing will ever tell you. Because these guys were not good guys. And they come out to John, and he doesn't tell them to quit their jobs. He gives them an entirely new way to do them. Tax collectors, of course, this hated bunch, notorious for gouging, would often charge more than they were supposed to charge, and they had the the callous power of Rome behind them, so they got away with it. And to them, John simply says, stop it. Stop. Collect no more than you're authorized to. Soldiers in the first century, they often used their positions to threaten and accuse and extort, you know, the classic shakedown move. They did it to their own advantage, and to, and to them, John simply says, stop doing that. If you want to be ready, stop. Don't extort money from anyone. Be content with your wages. If you think, if you believe truly that the God of, of purifying judgment is coming and you want to be ready for him, then keep walking in repentance. You're not the tax collector you were. You're not the soldier you were. You have been made new. It's remarkable. It's remarkable that he didn't tell them to quit their vocations. Instead, he tells them to inhabit them differently than they ever have before. And that's how the life of repentance works for you and me too. Repentance often requires a new approach to our vocations, to what we do with our days. And part of growing up as a Christian is thinking hard about that, probably with other people who share our vocation. And then using whatever positions we have, whatever power or influence might come with them in new ways, in new ways that anticipate, that prefigure the coming king and his gracious and peaceable and just kingdom. Sometimes that might be as simple as just doing our work honestly, like John told the tax collectors and the soldiers to do. But I suspect there's usually much more for people like us in the fruitful work of thinking hard about our vocations. And you know, John's answers to the crowd, (laughs) they paint a picture, don't they? They paint a picture of a world filled with justice. 
They paint a picture of a world filled with peace, the kind of peace, the kind of justice that the world had been made for, a world where those with power and influence use those things for good and not for their own gain, a world where those who have needs see them cared for by others who give freely to them, little incremental individual acts of justice and kindness that taken together become light that chases the dark away. Little incremental acts of justice and kindness and healing that prefigure the preeminent act of justice and kindness and healing in the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. John paints a picture of the light of God's advent making its way into the world through what we do through our hands and feet and voices. God's justice and healing and generosity and mercy extended into the world by the people who follow him in anticipation of his coming. Church, one of the ways that God dispels darkness is through us. In this picture that John painted of a world being made ready and a people being made ready and a world and a people being made right, man, it was so compelling. It was so compelling that some of the folks out there in the wilderness started to wonder if maybe he was the guy, if he was the Christ, if he was the king who was going to come. Well, John squashes that as quickly as he can. I baptize you with water, John says, but the one who's coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. (laughs) His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to clear his threshing floor and he's going to gather his wheat into his barn and the chaff he's going to burn with an unquenchable fire. I know. I know that's not the image of Jesus we usually call up during Advent. That's not little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. But that is the Jesus who came. And that is the Jesus who is coming. comes with the fire of purifying and healing. That's the baptism that he offers those who follow him. But we know, we know that in order for his healing to mean anything at all for the good of the world, he has to come with the fire of judgment as well. Because we know deep in our bones that in order for justice, in order for peace, in order for healing to endure, evil has to be put away for good. The light comes into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so John, old John, before he gets uh, thrown in the slammer for speaking truth to power, has made us ready for the light. He has made us ready for the coming of the light. What do we say to John's invitation right here, right now, this morning, to enter into a life of repentance and bathing in the grace of this Advent God for our good and for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, (laughs) make this preparation and this readiness as galvanizing to us as it clearly was. Father, that we would embrace this King who has come for our good and our flourishing and for the good and the healing and the judgment of the world, that we would embrace Him. 
and that we would live out his kingdom with everything that we have, all of our strength and might and influence and power and resources. Father, do this so that we can grow up in our faith and do this so that you can love this hurting world through your church. We think, Father, in particular this morning of people in our own state and in Missouri and Arkansas and Tennessee. We think in particular of Kentucky. And we ask, Father, that you would bring light and that you would bring peace to people who have suffered devastation and loss, that you would be happy to use your people on the ground as hands and feet and voice and comfort and healing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.